one of the things we talk about, uh, especially on the staff and with leadership, is uh, how you know if you have a healthy church. And it's, it's really harder to tell than you would think, like, because a lot of the signs of health can also just as easily be signs of unhealth. Having people that can be good, that can be bad, that you having good finances, that can be good. There are plenty of bad churches that have good finances. Um, and so it's, it's hard to do some of that. Um, I will tell you, I, I, think, I think seeing fathers baptize their children is a sign we're doing something right. Um, there's, a, there's a power in seeing a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, family members, mentors, teachers, um, really embracing the Great Commission enough to say, I want to go and make disciples and teach and baptize. We're not going to set that aside for the professionals. I want to do that. And I think that's exactly appropriate and exactly right. And so I was, uh, it's just such a blessing to see that. Um, I also want to make sure you guys know, um, uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, maybe months ago now actually, but, but um, we had a funny thing happen on the podcast where I made a statement on a Sunday morning, and John Redfern, when we got on the podcast, disagreed with the statement. We had a lot of good energy, we'll call it energy, a lot of good sparks on the podcast about it. Enough that I said, I went to Colson later, I was like, Colson, I feel like I need to put like an addendum at the end of the podcast to make sure people know. It's like, that's okay. There was no breach in fellowship. The love was not diminished. We just passionately disagreed on something. And Colson was like, well, it, it didn't record, so we're okay. And I don't, I don't know if Colson just like, delete, delete, delete. He's like, I don't, no one wants to hear this. Or if it was truly just, a, just God protecting all of you who, I mean, the, the nine of you who listen to the podcast, but the, uh, that, that protecting you guys. But Here's what it was about, and John was right in this that he said, because I, I made a mistake that I really annoys me when other speakers and writers, especially writers, do this, was when they create a false dichotomy that doesn't, it, it's false, it doesn't need to be there, and I had said from the stage, hey, listen, it's more important that you're involved in a small group than that you come to the big room, great room meetings. And, and again, <coughs> obviously, I think I can defend a way that makes sense, but also, at the, more importantly, it, it's not absolutely not necessary. It's not like those things have to be in competition with each other. You don't have to choose. You can be a part of a small group, and you need to be. Um, and you can come to this room and worship in community and learn and give and greet in community, and we need this too. So it's, it's not one or the other, and that was the, that's what he was calling me out on, totally rightly so, because a, a false dichotomies annoy me when other people do it. Um, <laughs> so it should annoy me when I do it. And I had done it that day. The truth is, we want you to be involved here, coming and worshiping and learning all of this stuff to have this community experience together it is vitally important. And as a church, we're actually going to, um, Lord willing, our plan is over the summer is to really do a push in the community, not just for our church, but for all the churches in the community to say to people, okay, what's it going to take to get you back to church? Um, for those who have gotten, gotten maybe too comfortable being online or not going at all or whatever, at what point do you step out? And I, I'm not telling you I know when that is for you. I'm just saying that needs to happen at some point. And you need to have a plan for that. You need to know like at what, state, what point do we come and gather and greet. And so um, hopefully that's part of our conversation. Now, that to be said, we also, starting next week, have adult life groups starting up. I want to very quickly go through which ones are starting up next week, and uh, so you can be looking at your schedule and saying, 
Where do I want to jump in? Where do I want to get in? And we've got, because we've got Sunday night life groups already. We've got Wednesday night life groups already. We've got numerous other life groups and Bible studies. Life groups is the term we use for all of the different discipleship groups and small groups that run through the church. There's also dozens of others that run independent of the church, and that's great too. That's actually probably one of the best expressions we can see of it. Now, here's what's starting. So at 9 o'clock next week, we will have uh, parents of teens with Chris and Katie Sherrod, a verse-by-verse study of Genesis with John Keeling. Biblical principles, this one doesn't start till April, biblical principles um, by Mark Gold and Chris Body. <coughs> Blended families by Terry and Laura Mebane. Then at 10.30, we will have the Prime Timers, which is kind of the retirement age class, um, with David Lake, uh, Dennis Singletary, and Lyle Skeels, and then uh, the women's group, there's a women's group uh, that's just for women. It meets, right now it's still meeting via Zoom, but you can get online and see with Marion Rainwater and, and find out more about that. Second hour, we also have another verse-by-verse class going through the book of Romans um, with Scott Hershey. Um, then we have the Honeymooners class, which is obviously the Newlyweds class, um, which is uh, by Nathan and Molly Cash. Then we have the Young Family Connections, so kind of the next life stage. Um, with Ryan Dennison. Then we've got the Legacy Builders, which is kind of the empty nester-ish uh, stage of life. And that's uh, the Terry Cooper, Sandy Anderson, Gina Hasley, and Lance Vincent will be leading. And also to know, like we have, we, we did a, the IF gathering this last week, this last weekend, the beginning of this weekend, Friday uh, and Saturday, and we had um, uh, a few dozen women come and experience that together and turn that into, as they were able to met, gather in small groups during and meet. This is vital. It is vital that we are able to make friends in the faith, and a small group is the most important opportunity, in my opinion, for doing that kind of thing. It's where you get to make friends, and those friendships are we, we desperately need. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he didn't send them with extra money, extra shoes, extra anything. What he sent them with was the power of the Holy Spirit and a friend. And this is, I think, Jesus teaching us. This is the fundamentals of Christian life, is in a, some, even the smallest form of community and him. So I think that's important. I hope that you're um, on the right page with that and that you're thinking about how you're going to get involved and invested in a small group and a life group here as, as well. Okay, here we are at the end of Daniel. <clears throat> We're in the post-credit scenes of Daniel um, here in the end of Daniel chapter 12. We've been wrestling with this external concept of justice, this idea of justice. So human courts can be and often are in error. Um, how many of you have been, anybody been, been on a jury? Any jurors? Yeah, okay, a bunch of you, right? So you know, if you've ever been on a jury, or if you're a judge, or if you're in law enforcement or whatever, you know that human justice is flawed because it involves humans, right? I remember being so weirded out on a jury, being in the jury room, and, and there was a vitally important question. There was a they had, the, no one had defined a term, and it was a very important term. It was literally the term that made the difference between this guilt and that guilt. There was one word, and no one had defined that word in the whole court. So I thought, I, I, the jurors were all like, yeah, could we, let's see if we can get that defined. So we wrote on a piece of note, handed it to the bailiff. The bailiff took it out to the judge. Could you please give us the legal definition of this word? The judge sends back a, bo- a note that says, no. I'm like, well, that's a problem. Like, it was long enough ago. Nowadays, I would just, you know, Google it, which is illegal, I'm sure, but it would be like, I, we kind of need to know what this word means in the law. We need to know that, and the judge is absolutely forbidden 
The, the lawyer, one of the lawyers should have done it, is what I, they said. Should have described, find it for you. They failed to do that. So you've got to make the best decision you can. I was like, this is a man's life on the line. Human justice is flawed. We do the best we can. It is flawed. There is error. There is bigotry. There is bias. There is, there is uh, malevolence. There is evil. And there's just humans involved in our legal system. That's always going to be the case. As Christians, we believe there is a transcendent, not only concept of justice, but a transcendent experience of justice. There is a justice that is external of us that we're aiming for and always to one degree or another kind of failing. Humans are not a great measure of anything. We are not a great standard of anything. Again, it boggles my mind when I (coughs) think about how often I've been wrong. You've been wrong. I've been confident and been wrong. I've been convicted of something in my heart and been wrong. And so have you. It is, I don't know if it's the theologian in me or the psychologist in me that is more offended by people putting their faith in themselves. And I'm like, again, as you've heard me say a million times, like, have, have you met you? It has amazed me that anyone who's ever met a human would go, that's where I need to place my faith, right there. It's delusional. I think it borders on insanity. I, I, my test scores would indicate I can be very, very confident of something and be wrong. Every, every teacher I've ever had would say, yep, Chris can be very, very certain of himself and still be wrong. Our belief is that there will be a perfect concept, and someday there will be a final perfect reckoning, a dead reckoning. There will be the judgment of the quick, the living, and the dead, and everyone will face that judgment. <clears throat> There's a division within this judgment that we're going to talk about that's hard to totally comprehend. I'll mention that more in a second. But the first part of judgment is what we often biblically refer to as the white throne judgment. It's connected to the Revelation passage. This is the the yes or no. Pass, fail. Lost, saved. Wheat, tares. Or wheat and chaff. Sheep, goats. Those who have accepted the free gift of adoption. Those who have rejected the free gift of adoption. This is called the great white throne judgment. It's, it's, again, I'm, gonna, I'm about to read the passage, but here's what I want you to picture. Probably in the Jewish mind, especially by the time of Revelation, when you thought about a great white throne, you were picturing the description, the, leg, the legacy or legends about Solomon's throne. So here's an artist's rendering of what Solomon's throne would have looked like. So you picture this grand white throne, an almighty God seated on that throne, And this is when the one book is open. The scroll is open. Someone is going to open up a scroll (coughs) on there, and they're going to say, they're going to look for your name. And if your name is there, then you're one of the sheep. You are the wheat. This is a judgment of your identity. This is a judgment of who and what you are. Are you one of mine? If you are, you go on this side. If you're not, you go on the other side. It is that simple. We see it in Revelation 20:15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book, again, we talked about how that's really scroll, the scroll of life he is thrown into the lake of fire. For example, it says in Matthew 13, this is at the end of the parable of the wheat and the tares. This is when some are considered they are wheat and only God knows. This is wheat. We save it. This is, these are tares. We burn those. And this is what he says. Here's how he interprets his own parable. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Understand, this is not, this is not so much a God sending people to hell as it is a God who offered... I'm just going to set that there. Wow. I wonder why that rolled. See? This is why they don't trust me with nice things. I'm going to set this over here for now so I don't have to undo it all. All right. Okay. So, here we go. The rebels, these are rebels. We are rebels from our first opportunity to sin. We are rebels. We are rebels against this God. We are like people who claim in our pride to know the river. That we claim in our own, in our own abilities, in our own merit, in our own performance, that we can survive this, this on our own. We've got it. No, no. I've got it sorted. It's good. I've got it. When the truth is there's a massive <coughs> life-ending waterfall coming up, and it's going to kill us all, and Jesus Christ is this lifeline who reaches out, but in our pride, many of us will say, no, no, I got it. I don't need any help. Years ago, I heard, I think Ginger and I were together, and we heard a, a basketball player named Jay Cardi, and he, he had been a, profession, a pro basketball player for a little while. He wasn't very good, according to himself. But he, he said, how many of you, but he, he could throw free throws really, really well. And he said, if the way to get into heaven was to throw 100 free throws in a row, about 1,200 people in the audience, how many of you would let me throw your free throws for you? Like, your only chance to get into heaven is to throw 100 free throws in a row, how many of you in the room would let me throw those for you? And only half of us stood. And he was like, what on earth is wrong with the rest of you? Do you understand that on your own merit, you will fail? You have no chance. He, asked, he actually asked, how many of you have ever thrown 100 free throws in a row? No one raised their hand. And he said, your first time won't be that time. I promise you it won't be. You, that won't be the, the oh, I, hey, I did it this one. No. He goes, I do it about half the time. About half the time I can throw free throws, 100 of them in a row. And only half of you will let me throw them for you. This is why people go to hell. Is because you go, oh, no, I'd rather do it on, uh-uh. I'll do it on my strength. And he says, you don't have any hope of it. In this analogy, at least you have a chance with me. In the analogy of judgment, you have a sure hope in Jesus. All the cards are stacked in your favor if you're on his side. It's, it's always a good thing when your defense attorney is the son of the judge. That's a nice touch. And so there's every advantage is with us if we take that stance. This is when we are judged and a verdict rendered. Sheep, goats. Now, I'm not going to jump into the doctrine of hell in, in this conversation today, just for the lack of time. We've referenced it in the past. It is okay that you're uncomfortable with the doctrine of hell. You just need to hear that. That's okay. In fact, if you're not uncomfortable with the doctrine of hell... It worries me a little bit. I think all of us who have a sense of mercy in our hearts are uncomfortable with the concept of the doctrine of hell. We can allow God to be the one who understands it even if we don't fully. We, we don't need to solve the doctrine of hell for God. He knows his doctrine of hell. It's right. There's a concept of justice, again, that transcends this. But there's this second judgment that's going to come. And there's a sense in which it's independent. To what degree it's independent, it's hard to know. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment, and this is when our works are judged. I want you to see how these are independent in that your salvation is dependent upon the first judgment. Then the judgment happens of what we do. This is a value of our identity. This is an evaluation of our 
works. This is an evaluation of who we are and whose we are. This is an evaluation of what we've done. They're two very different things, and they are clearly divided scripturally. This is called the Bema seat. It's not even the same chair used for judgment. And so we talked about, Paul and I were talking about, like, is this, do you think it's more like it happens at once? Like, okay, I call Paul McKenzie up to the stand, or call Paul McKenzie, he comes to the defense attorney table, and he sits at the, the table for the defense, and then the prosecution is laid out. Maybe that's by Satan. Satan's name means prosecutor. It means accuser. And so the accuser is Satan, and Satan says, this is an awful person. He sinned against you. You should condemn him. And, and God's going to turn to him and, and ask him for his input. What, what, what would you say? And, and then, and then when, that's done, when that part of the judgment is done, I'll talk more about that in a second. When that part of the judgment is done, does God then say, like, wait, stay there, because now I'm going to judge your works? Because that was the book, the one I threw on the floor. Now let's open up all the books, and let's look at your whole life and discuss it. Is that happening like that? Or is it, okay, let's do everybody on the wheat and tares thing, the great right throne judge. Okay, good. We're all done. All of the, all the tares are over here. All the wheat is over here. Now I'm going to go through and judge. Independ- we don't know. We don't know the mechanics of this. God has it sorted. We don't. That's the, that's, there's, somehow there's a plan in there. And let me just tell you, when the day comes for you to stand in the white throne judgment, <clears throat> when you're standing before Almighty God and it is accused against you that you are lost and a sinner and a rebel, and God says, how do you plead? Here's what you're going to say. What you're going to say is, I throw myself fully on the mercy of the Son. I make no claims. I make make no defense. What I deserve is punishment. I have put my hope in your Son and His work to save me. And, And if you're tempted to go, and there's that, don't. Don't do that. We have one hope, only one hope. All our eggs are in one basket. It is not us. All our eggs are in Him. This is our only hope. It's our only shot. Everything else is failing. Everything else is guaranteed to fail. Have you met you? Same question. We're going to talk more about that in a second. Now, our works are to be judged as well. It says in 2 Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat. This is the word bema, the Greek word, of Christ, so that one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, what is a bema seat? It's a seat that was put up on a stage. Of all the cool things, we have found the Bema seat in Corinth. So that the Second Corinthians, that we know what they were picturing. And so it's not fully reestablished, but here's what it looks like. Um, that's it, where the little white sign is. That little white sign is right under the Bema. Um, now, of course, in America, we would have you know, armed guards, and it would be all hermetically sealed, and you couldn't get anywhere near it. Luckily, in Corinth... Um, you can actually go up on top of it and look what it looks like from the outside. So that's me taking it. Yes, of course, I went and sat in the Bema seat. Judge me if you want to, but of course I did. So that's, I took that picture from the Bema seat in Corinth. What a cool thing that we have Corinthian Bema, of all the Bema seats to have, we have the one in Corinth. In Corinth. Um, also, the Jews used that same Greek word to refer to the raised platform in their synagogues when they had to make judgment. I have a picture of so this, this little raised platform in a synagogue, this is where you would stand in order to, again, it could be part of passing judgment. That's part of what the Bema seat was for, was the passing of judgment. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, <laughs> starting in verse 12, Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, <coughs> wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose. The day, that's the judgment day, will disclose it. 
because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So <clears throat> I had a Sunday school teacher when I was a teenager, and he would always reference um, this, and he was right to say this. He would say, when I look at my life, I figure I will only be a ditch digger in heaven, but it will be in heaven, and I'm okay with that. So you need to hear the pass-fail test. That's the big one. That's the one that really matters. Now, it's, it's, it's like when I do marriage counseling with people, I will tell them, are y'all going to get a divorce? No. Okay, good. Then you might as well figure this out, right? I mean, you might as well try to make a good marriage since you're not going anywhere. You might as well do what you can to make a good one. It's hard work. It's going to be really difficult. And yet, I mean, if you're not leaving anyway, it's kind of like that. If you're going to be one of Jesus's and, and you're going to be in heaven for eternity, you might as well work for the rest of your life to live out his calling as we have been called. That's what we would look for. Why not? Why wouldn't you? I mean, you're not, you're not going anywhere, so you might as well take with you all the gold and silver and precious things that won't burn up in the revealing, the testing. But understand, it's, it, this shows clearly this division of judgment. They'll be saved, but their works will burn up. People who invest in something other than eternity, people who invest in popularity here, fame here, money here, the things that we invest in here, it will all burn. Everything invested here will burn. This building will burn. The church won't, but this building will. This land will. This property will. All of it burns. Everything, all the works will be tested. The things that are invested in eternity will last. The things invested here will burn. There are going to be people who smell like smoke in heaven. They made it in, but only as through fire. You'll be able to tell. They, they, they didn't take much with them in that they didn't invest in eternity. They didn't, and by the way, what's eternal? God's eternal. God's Word is eternal. We are eternal. Not much else. Most of the rest of it goes away. Hebrews 9.27 clarifies this, and just as it is appointed, appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So reincarnation theories don't work with Christian doctrine. We are destined to die once, and then we face judgment. We don't come back to earth over and over again. What we are is judged. First, the great white throne judgment, and then somehow also the Bama seat judgment of works. Notice how this is not behavioral modification teaching. Judgment is fundamentally an issue of identity. It's fundamentally that. Ephesians 2, we are but God in His work. He, he chose us. He has saved us through His works, not our works. No one can boast. And He intends for us to work because He has good things in the store for us to do that He prepared before time. That's Ephesians 2.10. Yes, there is work for us to do, and there's a judgment about that. It makes sense. It's not the saving judgment. In fact, here's an interesting way for us to come at this. <coughs> Hebrews 12 says this, verses 1 and 2, and we'll start in verse 1 and 2, and we'll tell this story kind of backwards from Hebrews 12 and 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now notice, Jesus again, not surprising, Jesus is the center of attention here. We'll come back to that. But this phrase, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I was raised on this, I think, being taught with good heart, but incorrectly. I think the way I was raised, some of it, and, and especially when I was younger, this passage was taught as a little bit of a Santa Claus passage. Like Santa Claus is watching you, right? So these saints, all these saints are up in heaven somewhere, and they're looking down on you, and they're watching you, this great cloud of witnesses. And I think that's error for numerous reasons. I'm going to show you in a second what I think it actually is talking about, which I think is pretty clear. But I also think it's just a mistake to think that that's what, if there are people in heaven, to think that that's what they would be doing. I mean, really? They don't have other things to do? They're watching us? The idea that there's a cloud or cloud of witnesses who are watching me preach this morning, they're not omniscient. They can only watch one thing at a time, even if they could. And they're watching this. This is what they're watching. I think my grandmother has better things to do. And I think she was my only shot at someone watching me this morning from heaven. And I think she's got better things to do than that. If she's in heaven, if that's already there, if, that's, if people are already there, that would not, I don't think that would work for a thousand different reasons. I think that's a mistake. And I certainly think this passage does not teach that. So let me show you what I mean. Let's look at what it actually is talking about. Because what we're talking about here is witnesses, not observers, witnesses. So we'll go back, let's look at Hebrews 11. I'm not going to, not yet, what I'm going to show you is there's a whole list of people in Hebrews 11, and here's who, what unites them. Here's who they are. Starting in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, this is a list of people who didn't receive the full picture, who didn't receive the full understanding, who never got to see the final gift. And yet, they died in faith. They made it to the end in faith, even though they didn't understand what was going on fully. What is, look what it says in Hebrews eleven thirty nine, And these, again, this list of people, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Meaning, they didn't get to meet Jesus. They didn't get to read Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, most of them. They didn't get this teaching. They didn't get this doctrine. They didn't get to see the fulfillment. They didn't, many of them, most of them, didn't even get to see the new covenant. Now, all of this, there was something better coming, and they knew it was coming, but they didn't get to experience it, and yet they died in faith. <coughs> Here's what I think this is saying. Imagine the excuses that are going to be given in that courtroom. Imagine when God says, what is your plea? And they go, I was a pretty good person. That's my plea. Oh, so you didn't trust in my son. You didn't trust in his work. By the way, stop and I want you to just take a second and ask yourself, consider how offensive in that courtroom the phrase, I was a good person, will be. You will inspire the wrath of the judge with that phrase. I've been shocked at how many people in our church, when we ask them about salvation, about their relationship with God, Give a meritorious answer. Well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, I've done these good things. Well, I've, if you should, how, why should God let you into heaven? Well, I'm, I've, you know what? I do a lot of good things. Understand, in that moment, in that courtroom, there will be very few things more offensive than that phrase. Oh, oh, so you had your own plan. 
okay, well, let's hear about your plan and why it was such a huge waste for me to have a plan and to send my son to come and die in your stead. No, no, I want to hear that. You see how offensive that would be in that courtroom? So someone's going to say, yeah, I, I, didn't get to, I didn't get enough of the picture. Here's my, you know what? I would have believed if I had known at all. You can't trust what you don't know, God. And you didn't let me know it all, so I didn't trust. If I had seen it all, then I could have believed. If I could have stuck my hands in his wounds like Thomas, then I would have believed. You didn't give me enough of the complete picture. That's why I don't believe. And God's going to say, really? I call to the stand Abel. Abel, what did you understand about sacrifice? Not much. There was no law yet. There was no Israel yet. There were no priests yet. There was nothing. I just, I just thought I should probably give the best and first of everything I had ever gotten back to you. I don't know. I mean, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Do you understand the significance of the sacrifice? Do you understand how my son was the ultimate fulfillment of all sacrifices? Abel will say, I, di- I didn't even meet him until I got here. I- I'd never heard of him until I got here. I knew nothing about a new covenant, an old one or a new one. <laughs> but you still in faith stepped out and sacrificed. Yes, sir. I just, I mean, that's what I did. I trusted you. Okay. You may step down. I now call Enoch to the stand. Enoch, what did you understand about living a holy life and the rewards that came with that? I just, listen, I just did my best. I didn't understand any of this stuff. I just knew you were God and that I should serve you the best I can. And then you chose to just pull me straight to heaven rather than to let me die. I had no idea that was part of the deal. Apparently, there's not many of us up here who got to experience that. It's really pretty weird. Like me and Elijah are kind of it. It's, it's been a weird thing. Like, I don't know what you were thinking. but it was like, So you didn't fully get what I was doing. No, I had no idea what you were doing. And yet, and yet you were faithful. Yes, sir. How many is he going to have to call? Hebrews 11 has this list, this great cloud of witnesses that God can call. One after another after another. No, it's too hard, God. Really? Okay, then I call to the stand Noah. He's the next in the list. What did you understand about the whole ark thing? I, I had no clue. Nothing. He told me to build a boat, so I built a boat. Like that's, that's what I understood about it. I mean, did you see what I did after the whole boat thing? That would indicate I didn't understand what you were doing at all right? Everything I did afterwards was a huge mistake. I didn't understand what was going on, but you said build a boat, so I built a boat. I didn't understand what it was all about. Okay, Noah. Abraham, how about you? Did you understand what this whole covenant thing meant? I would, I would say based on my reaction with Hagar, no. No, I didn't fully get it. You can look that stuff up later if you don't know those stories. This is no, I did not fully get it, but I did my best. I walked in faith, and, and you decided to count that as righteousness. I'm not sure why, but you did. I'm, I'm, listen, I, I, I did not fully understand it. You told me I was going to have a nation. When I died, I had a couple of dozen family members. That's all I knew. What about Jesus, the fulfillment of that total of that covenant? What do you think about him? What did you think about him when you were on earth? I didn't know he existed. I didn't know you were triune. I'd never heard of him until I got up here. Oh, but you died in faith. Yes, sir, I I did. I trusted you. That's all I knew to do. Oh, really? Without a complete picture? Yes, sir. The list goes on in Hebrews 11. Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, the entire Hebrew race, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, 
those who stop the mouths of lions. Hey, we get that reference, don't we? Those who quench the power of fire. Hey, we know who did that. Who escaped the edge of the sword. Who gained strength from weakness. Who became mighty in war. Who chased foreign armies. Women receiving back their dead. Some tortured to death. Mocked, flogged, in chains, in prison. Stoned to death. Sawn in two. Killed with the sword. Destitute. Living without basic needs. Afflicted, mistreated, and homeless. How many do you want me to call? A thousand? Ten thousand? A hundred thousand? There are thousands of people in prison and being tormented for the cause of Christ today and 2021 spread around the world. The moment of judgment, the moment before that, there will have been tens of thousands of people suffering for, the, for Jesus Christ. Maybe millions by then. You want me to call all them? Did any of you fully get it? No. Did you die in faith? Yes. Is that still the defense you want to make, son? I don't think so. I don't think so either. None of those defenses are going to stand. He's got a cloud of witnesses he can call all day long. They're right there, one after another. Our students last week at DNL, they studied uh, three of these great witnesses, Caleb, Ruth, and Andrew. Can you imagine if you get up on this stage and you go, I was too old. I was too old to do the work. I was too old. You know what? Can't teach an old dog. I was too old. I couldn't get it. I called to the stand Caleb. Caleb, how old were you when you started? Started to take your mountains with your family. 80? Okay, thought so. Have a seat. You still want to make that defense? No, sir. I didn't think so. Too inexperienced? Caleb, what did you spend your whole life doing? Wandering in a desert? Okay. Too hard to stand against the crowd? Was that your problem? No, no, I just couldn't stand up against the crowd. The peer pressure was too much. Caleb, you and Joshua stood up against how many? Um, everyone. Our entire race stood against us. Just the two of you. Yes, sir, just the two of us. Okay, is that the defense you want to make? I don't think so. Ruth, are you not important enough a person to make a stand? Are you too out of place, outside of your comfort zone? I think Ruth will be called to the stand against that. Were you asked to pay too high a cost? Is that the problem? I think Ruth could be called. Andrew, you didn't understand it. You weren't sure what to do. It's all just too complicated. You didn't know what you were dealing with. Andrew, <coughs> every time we see you in, in my word, you're taking somebody to Jesus. <laughs> That's all I knew to do. Thought so. Have a seat. Really? That's all you got? We need these heroes and examples, the living ones and the dead ones, sometimes even the fictional ones. But in Scripture, what we have are real, live, great witnesses for the fact that it is possible to stand when others fall. It is possible to grow when others stagnate. It is possible to change when everyone else stays the same. These things are possible. I, I love the song, Rich Mullins, maybe, maybe my favorite song, one of my favorite songs of his is a song called Boy Like Me, Man Like You. And in it, he references this line. And it's him talking to Jesus, talking to a young Jesus. And he's saying, did they tell you stories about the saints of old? Stories about their faith? They say stories like that make a boy grow bold. Stories like that make a man walk straight. That's a beautiful thing. We need this. I love that our students were introduced to these three heroes last week. Again, is the pressure just too strong? Is the pressure to walk away too much? And that was your excuse? There's a whole cloud of witnesses. And brethren, I do believe, beloved, that pressure is coming at a new level. I think as a church, as the church in, in the West, in America, I think we face either an awakening which would be awesome. We pray for that. Or we face exile, 
we will be truly strangers in a strange land, exiled. No one's interested in what we have to say. Or worse, we'll be persecuted. I think these are the three potential paths ahead of us. The good news is we only trust in one. That's all we need to trust in. I want to tell you the story of my understanding of judgment that I grew up with quickly. I grew up with this very terrifying image of judgment. Maybe some of you did too. Maybe you still live in terror of judgment. I did for a long time. I imagined, and I don't know if this came from a video or a photo or whatever, but I have a very vivid picture, maybe just my own imagination, of a stage like this. It's bare, and there's a stool on this side, and there's a stool on this side, and there's a big old huge screen, and somewhere out in the middle is an 8 millimeter reel, because I'm that old. <coughs> and, and it's going to start making that clicking noise, and that's going to come up on the screen, and it's going to count down, three, two, one, and my life's going to begin to be shown. And all of mankind, inclu- mankind including all of you, are going to be out there. I don't care that all of you are going to be out there. My grandmother's going to be out there. <clears throat> and she, and it's going to, I mean, she's going to see stuff I don't want her to see. She's going to see dark and shameful and awful and embarrassing things that I don't want anyone to see, and especially not Gigi. I really don't want her to know that I did those. She thinks of me differently than that. And, that's, and all of us would have those. We would have things we would never want to be put on a screen for anyone to see, much less for the whole world to see, much less for our grandmothers to see. And to go... Oh no, please, please hey, tell her to turn these turn aside. Like somebody give her some distractor during these parts. Like I, I think that's gonna be part of what we're looking at. And that's and I was teaching about this. I'd been asked to a group, a small group of students, asked this question, what about judgment? What does it look like? And I was confessing that this was my picture and that I didn't even know how biblical it was, but this was my picture. And here's how I said it, and had to stop myself when I said because what's going to happen is that screen's going to be ready to roll, and Jesus Christ in all of his glory is going to come out on stage and sit with me on this stage, and then we're going to watch my life. Wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Jesus Christ in all of his glory, as revealed in Revelation 1, with eyes of flame, with hair like wolf, shining like the sun itself, except ten times more, and the feet of bronze, and every word being like a sword spoken, and he's going to walk out on stage... And no one is going to give a rip about me or anything on this screen. Why would he? No one's going to care about me being on stage. No one will be able to take their eyes off of him, me included, Gigi included. It doesn't matter what they show on the screen. No one's going to see it. No one's going to care what's up there. Jesus is there. Here's a huge news flash. Jesus is the protagonist of my story. He, judgment, it turns out, here's a big shock. I could have learned this from Daniel anywhere along the way, right? Here's the big news. Jesus, the story is about him. My judgment, my personal independent judgment with the unrolling of all the scrolls and all the different things in my life, it turns out, is about him, not me. That is an incredibly different understanding to understand that judgment involves him. Here's the other way that that plays out. And I got permission from Lori to tell this story um, because if you talk about a woman's wedding night, you need to get her permission before you... Before you, and John now knows what's coming. The first hour, he was like, oh, what's coming? So I do premarital counseling a lot. And one of the things you talk about in premarital counseling is sex. That's an important part of the premarital counseling. And one of the questions I like to ask the bride to be, how are you feeling about this? Because some women are very much so taught to be terrified of their wedding night and, and to be scared of that. And so I'm like, you know, are you nervous about your wedding night? And I remember Lori saying, um, I mean, sort of, but John will be there so it'll be okay. That's, that is such an amazing reminder of this truth. Am, am I nervous about judgment? A little bit. But Jesus will be there. And he loves me more than I love myself. 
He's not some kid up there to haze me. Judgment isn't Jesus hazing us. He's not up there pulling wings off the flies. He's not, he's not oh, now I get to get you good. No, he already died for these sins. And we evaluate them in the love that only he can exhibit, and it turns out it's going to be fine. I don't know exactly how it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Jesus will be there. He loves me more than I love myself. This continues on. He, you can understand, like, he is the protagonist. Remember in John 11 when the question, hey, do you believe in the resurrection? Oh, yes, I believe someday there will be a resurrection, Mary or Martha says. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. You're talking about me here. I am the resurrection. There is no resurrection without me. Daniel's protagonist gets the final word in the book of Daniel. No big surprise. Jesus gets the final words in Daniel, Daniel 12, 9 through 12. He says, go your way, Daniel. This is a response to Daniel's, I don't understand. Jesus says, go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time of the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Someday that will make sense to us. It, it doesn't now. Perhaps very specifically and very literally, we'll see. The wicked will never get it, Jesus says, but the wise will. What great comfort for an author. The right people will understand. They'll get it. You'll be a blessing. Just wait. The wait and the watch and the work in the meantime. It's fun to read some of the older commentaries. I read an older commentary looking at this passage because no one seems to have any grasp on these two numbers really well, especially the second one. Where does that come from? There's, there's three and a half years, apparently at some point. We've seen that numerous times. And then 45 days later, something's going to happen. Everybody guesses that it has to work. One of the older commentaries I really appreciated reported on a ton of work and research that someone did to basically clarify and simplify, listen, the last day will be in 1867. That's how old the commentary is. It's, it's old enough that they're like, no, nope, listen, I'm making the call, 1867. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that wasn't right. Um, so is it, what is it going to be? <coughs> Don't know. What I know is this. Those who wait well will be blessed. We, our, our, our gold and silver will be refined, and we get to experience whatever it means to be rewarded in heaven. Again, that, that trying to boggles my mind a little bit. We get to take care of business, which is what Jesus tells Daniel here. Just wait and watch. Take care of business. You've done your, you've done your work. The parable of the, of the um, foolish virgins, the one who aren't prepared to wait, which I think is the whole point of that parable. They aren't prepared to wait, and it costs them. We need to be prepared to wait. So if you're part of the, the pride, panic, and protest response to the end times of judgment, either that it's all about me, or things are going to spin out of control, or I'll be going to the end times kicking and screaming... I'm going to do a lot of alliteration, so let's, let's go back and let's celebrate that for a second. Pride, panic, and protest. And there's three of them, as Paul pointed out. Or this school, the school of waiting, watching, and working. That's what Daniel is called to. Verse 13, last verse. But you go your way until the end, and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of days. We've talked about how much we love the fact that the book of Daniel ends with a deep sigh. Everybody can take a deep breath. The world's falling apart. We know that's going to happen. Daniel has foreseen it through the power of God. And Jesus, having just presided over Daniel, seeing these visions, tells to 90-year-old Daniel, you can go now. Finish your nature walk. 
take some rest, finish, what the, finish the last three chapters of your book, seal it up, put a stamp on it. You've done your job for your people, which is what you've been doing all along. When the resurrection comes, apparently at least 2,600 years later or longer, you'll be right where you belong. You'll be right where you're supposed to be. First Timothy, Paul writes this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. So go back to your rooms, finish these three chapters in your scroll, lay back on your bed, and wonder at the fact that with all you've faced, crazy kings, civil wars, kidnappings, regime chains, even attempted executions, you're going to get to die in peace. It reminds me of, of Bilbo Baggins closing up, there and back again by Bilbo Baggins. Done. He finishes this up. Daniel probably lays down to take a nap, and he'll wake up when the trumpet blasts. He's been waiting all that long. Daniel saw and experienced over a long lifetime. Are you a young person? If you need an example of what it is to stay, stay strong and faithful when you're young, I recommend Daniel. If you're in a career position where you're at the height of your influence, the height of your power, the height of your wealth, I recommend Daniel to know how to live that out well. If you're an old person, if you're on your deathbed, I recommend you look to Daniel for how to die well, how to finish strong. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 refers to that this way. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works, just as God did from his. So as we sang, when we've been there 10,000 years, 10,000 years with the untamed lion, a God limitless in his kindness and a lover of mercy and creativity, showing off every day the limits of his limitlessness, 3,650,000 days of Christmas mornings. When we've been there 10,000 years, we've barely begun. So rest in that, and we can encourage one another in this. This is the, the foundation of our hope, is the resurrection that will come in Jesus Christ. And His judgment, He'll be there with us.